today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. This upcoming municipal election, four incumbent councillors not returning. Donna Skelly been elected to, to the provincial government. Matthew Green trying to make a run uh, for the feds. Aiden Johnson, uh, Robert Pursuta deciding not to run. Uh, this is going to be a big change. Remember when uh, last municipal election, we had a similar sort of change, and uh, people thought that was a big deal. Let's bring in Larry Deany, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, and is with us now. Larry, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So I remember the last municipal election, there was quite a bit of change, or at least we thought, you know, if you look back in history. So this is shaping up to be pretty much the same sort of thing, is it not? It, uh, it is, uh, by virtue of uh, people either stepping away or, or wards uh, uh, disappearing or uh, people seeking higher office and deciding not to contest at the local level. But it seems as if there's going to be some new faces around the table, and that's always good. Uh, the only thing is some of the faces that are leaving were only new faces themselves. So <laughs> is it one step forward, one step back here? That's right. Yes, yes. We hardly knew you. And, uh, and Thanks for coming. Yeah. Well, but, you know, events, um, you know, I think it was one of the British prime minister who was asked about, uh, you know, the challenges uh, of, of governance. And he turned around and he said, events, dear boy, events. And that's what happens. I mean, things occur, dynamics change, uh, people change. Uh, circumstances alter, and uh, here we are with a, a new uh, configuration for the city of Hamilton uh, with some new faces around the table. And that's not to say that some of the existing faces that uh, are being challenged, because I know of some uh, some heated battles uh, that are going to go on, uh, maybe some of those faces might change as well. Um, we are in for, I think, uh, a uh, an election that is going to be unprecedented in terms of the number of, uh, of people that will change around the table. Do people realize when they get into this, uh, when they jump into this uh, hat, how difficult it is, how time-consuming it can be? You know, I think people underestimate uh, that a little bit, um, especially in Hamilton, especially at the, you know, I, I was a politician at the lower um, a tier in Stony Creek for many years and then went to the uh, senior level, uh, you know, those unified city. And it's just a whole different game um, uh, in Hamilton. You know, you've got uh, the media presence, uh, which you don't have in the, uh, in the other communities as much. Uh, and it's also sometimes an antagonistic media made up of good people with good intentions, sometimes lazy journalists as well, who like to rehash old stories. Um, and, and you have to take the good with the bad, as in all cases. And, and then there's the pressures of, um, of uh, always, um, you know, have facing constituents um, that, that have their own demands, and sometimes you can satisfy them and sometimes you can't, and it's always your fault. And uh, so it, I think people underestimate that a little bit. On the other hand, you know, that there are some positives. It is a relatively well-remunerated position. It gives you status. You're on the board of directors of a, of a, you know, a corporation that's a couple of billion dollars. I think we're almost there now, uh, trying to steer that that ship. Uh, and um, it's a relatively small council, even with 15 or 16 people around the table, uh, affecting some important decisions. So there is status with that, and importance of uh, committing yourself to the community. And then you're you're really your own boss. You come for a performance review once every four years. 
And if you've been a good employee, uh, you're going to be rewarded. If not, uh, maybe there's some challenges. How difficult is it to make the jump from one level of politics to the other, whether it's municipal to provincial and then provincial to federal? Well, let me tell you, I think it's a lot easier to, to, um, to make the transition uh, to the higher level, and I say higher order only because, <clears throat> you know, there's the province, which is uh, far larger than the country, which obviously is the maximum. Uh, I think that transition is far easier because you're out of public eye. You're either in Toronto or you're in, uh, in Ottawa, hmm. whereas if you're a municipal politician, you're here and and you get immediate feedback, whether you go to the corner store uh, or the shopping mall or the restaurant or you're walking down the street, somebody is sure to recognize you and always approach you, mostly with complimentary chit-chatter, uh, but sometimes with complaints as well. And they let you know, because if you don't pick somebody's garbage up um, on, on the Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever the, the cycle calls for that, you get that phone call right away, whereas a, a provincial law and a federal law takes a long time for it to trickle down and affect us personally, as personally. So the the municipal, I think, is the most challenging level of all. What are your thoughts on the recent cabinet shuffle of Trudeau and, of course, Philomena Tassi and what this means for Hamilton? Well, I think it's great. It's been a long time since we had a, uh, we've had a, uh, a cabinet minister uh, in the city of Hamilton <clears throat> and uh, uh, Trudeau um, uh, bypassed us uh, when he made his first appointment, um, and I suppose he wanted to assess who uh, was cabinet material, and I'm very pleased. Uh, Philomena Tassi is a uh, person of uh, great substance. Not only is she a uh, trained lawyer, she was also uh, in the social service field uh, as a chaplain of a high school dealing with young people, and I think uh, the seniors' portfolio fits her well. But most importantly, being at the cabinet table gives Hamilton a more special voice um, in terms of getting things done and being a conduit for our city to the federal government. And, And that's just wonderful to see. All right, let's talk about what everybody's really sort of underlying talking about, and that is the LRT. Uh, how is that going to play into the next municipal election? Well, so so at the mayoralty level, I don't think it'll affect the ward levels very much, um, and although I see, um, I, I think that the various uh, candidates vying for election in the various wards are going to try to read where their constituents are and take a position that they feel might be in line with what their constituents might want. But at the mayoralty level, it could be a huge issue. It could be a game-changing issue. I suspect it will not be. Uh, I think there will be um, some uh, uh, some uh, mayoralty candidates uh, that will try to make that the ballot box uh, issue uh, to drive votes. I, and, and liken it, uh, you know, with an issue that I know very well, because I certainly did this when I ran and won the mayoralty, uh, the, the Red Hill Expressway. Um, but there are some market market differences. I think in that case, there was a 54-year pent-up desire to see that road completed. Yeah. And it was something that was going to be built. It's not something that's going to be taken away. But people usually don't get elected for wanting to uh, uh, crush projects or stop projects, get, they get elected when they want to build things. 
and that's my that's my feeling anyway. And so I, I think it's a false equivalency to say that this might become the Red Hill battle equivalent of the previous election. Although, who knows, if it's played well, if people uh, on either side of that issue uh, say the wrong thing or give the wrong signal, they might make it more of a, an issue than it, uh, it uh, might be in, the, in people's minds right now. The press, I think, will try to make that an issue only because, you know, the press likes, are you for or are you against? Um, uh, are you this or are you that? And, and they like the polarity of that because that clearly defines uh, individuals that are running. Uh, but if you talk to people out there, uh, they'll have an opinion on it, but it's not one that's driving, I think, their vote, at least not at this early stage. So been there, done that, we've been over this, let's just move on? Yep. That being said, I'm going to ask one of those media questions. <laughs> <laughs> Will councillors have to reaffirm their position on this as we move forward? Well, I, I, think, I think they will want to do that. I mean, I've spoken to a few of the councillors, and, uh, and my guess is what they're telling me uh, will find its way on a brochure somewhere. Uh, but they'll do that uh, probably based on um, not so much what they've done in the past, because remember, this council... Uh, this current council has reaffirmed that project many times. They voted for it many times. But they are going to claim that, you know, the landscape has changed provincially. And, you know, the current... Has it really, though? I mean, you know, I don't know. It really hasn't. No, it has I mean, it hasn't from this perspective. I mean, there was some chatter at the beginning, you know, when Donna Skelly was on council that the money was going to be used from something out for something else, and that was pretty much kibosh. That was put out by the Ford camp pretty quick, that fire, yeah. was it not? And, that, and that's my point, right? My, my point is that if, if people think for a second that there is a billion dollars sitting in a bank account somewhere waiting to be given to Hamilton, they're wrong. What the provincial government uh, intends to do if this project goes ahead, and it's going ahead as we speak, is to leverage a loan for the project against the asset that's being built. If I can put it in layman's terms, at least that I understand, I can go to the bank and ask for a loan to build a house. The bank will look at my finances and decide to give me a loan or not. But i got to build the house. I will not get that loan if I, if I don't build a house, if I say, well, I'm going to use it for something else. Mm. There's no asset to leverage against the loan. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So the asset has to be built in order for the billion dollars to pay for that asset. And, of course, that's what the province is going to do. So I, I don't think the landscape has changed that much. But what's changed, perhaps, is that in people's minds, I don't know how many people have thought that through, in people's minds, they might think that there's a change. And there's a concerted group of people who want to stop this project. So they, And this is the chance to do it, they feel, the municipal election. And they're going to go, especially if some candidates are going to take a position one way or the other. We've already seen that beginning to happen. And so consequently, they're going to be out there, you know, uh, uh, flogging uh, that, that horse as well. Uh, but, but, and, and therefore, counselors will, will moderate uh, or nuance their uh, support or non-support based on what they think their ward wants. And so if it's a mountain ward that... It, has been lukewarm to this project from the beginning, they might go one way. If it's a downtown inner city ward that, you know, where the LRT is going, they might go another way. So I suspect people will uh, express themselves on the issue. 
So in the end, will people, will voters, will will even those running say so much money has been spent on this already, even though shovels aren't in the ground at this point, that, you know, it just simply doesn't make sense to, to, to stop it or turn it around? Or will it be nothing is set in stone until those shovels are in the ground? Well, because so, there's going to be those out there until the thing starts rin- ripping by and dinging the bell, they're still not going to cry you know, uncle. So I think the you know depending on who you listen to, anywhere from eighty million to one hundred twenty million dollars has been spent. That isn't chump change. That is not chump change. I remember when I interviewed then candidate uh, Ford uh, before he, he became premier. I actually interviewed him on my little TV program, and I said, you know, money has been spent. A hundred million dollars has been spent. He said, well, that is a problem. So even he acknowledged that having spent money almost ties you to the project. So the responsible thing, I think, is to say, look, we've approved it. We are spending money. Planning is ongoing as we speak. This is a decision that was made by the last council. It has to be honored. I think that would be the responsible thing to say. But who says elections are about, are about being responsible? They're about trying to win, right? All right, what would you say to anybody who's thinking of throwing their hat into a ring? Go for it. I've been asked by, I, I, I've been asked by uh, probably eight or nine people, you know, my opinion of this and what do you think if I do that and, and so on, only because they, they see me as, as, you know, long in the tooth, not involved directly anymore, and maybe have gained a little bit of wisdom along the way. So I ask them these basic questions. Why do you want to run? Can you take rejection? Because, you know, a lot of people are going to run and only one wins. Do you have enough funds or support um, uh, to to run a good campaign, especially now that the rules have changed that even if you had your own money, you can't use it. you got to go out and actually fundraise. And and finally, do you have a, uh, a platform for change and for improvement of the position and the, the constituents you want to run for that want to run. And if the answer to those is positive and you've thought it through, then go for it. Why should anybody be denied the chance to express themselves in a democratic process and try to serve their community? I certainly would never do that. Unless the person is totally way out of left field, and I've had conversations with some of those people too, um, then, then you know, I encourage people. I don't discourage them. Larry DeAnne has been with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton. Larry, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a good day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario's new premier, Doug Ford, says Ontario will use every single tool to fight the mandatory carbon tax implemented, or which will be imposed, rather, uh, by the uh, Trudeau Liberals if, in fact, the provinces don't have one. He joins along, he joins Saskatchewan and their court challenge. Here is a clip of the premier. I was elected on a promise to scrap the carbon tax. It's a bad tax for families, and it's a bad tax for businesses. I'm here to gather support among my provincial counterparts against the federal carbon tax. All right, let's bring in Steve Applin, publisher of Emission Track, which monitors CO2 carbon dioxide emissions from energy use. Steve is with us now. Steve, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Great to be back, Scott. Where is this going? Where will this end up? Well, it's a political fight in the end. I know it's going to be a court challenge between Saskatchewan, Ontario, and the federal government on one side, if it goes to that. Uh, it'll, it's going to be there's going to be a legal dimension to it, a jurisdictional uh, uh, jurisdictional dimension to it, but it's mostly a political 
uh, thing. And you got to imagine that in that context, Saskatchewan and Ontario have the, have the advantage. They've both got the, their governments, their current governments were more recently elected. Uh, the Ontario uh, a premier could not have been more clear on the election trail about his opposition to a carbon tax, and he was uh, not only uh, uh, he not only won a huge majority, but the government that brought in carbon pricing, which he was opposed to, uh, was annihilated. The federal government, on the other hand, I know that the prime minister has said that he you know campaigned on a carbon tax and all that, but he campaigned on a lot of things in 2015. Carbon tax was just one of them. Hmm. And in the and in the intervening you know nearly three years, what have we gotten from the federal government about a carbon tax? This is their fixation when it comes to uh, carbon reduction. But what coherent statement have they come out with that doesn't make the national press gallery laugh when whenever whenever it's it's brought out the the federal minister the the, the point person on this the, the federal environment minister can't get a coherent statement out of her mouth about the benefits of such a tax i think that the advantage the political advantage anyway belongs to saskatchewan and ontario are you surprised they didn't uh, the prime minister didn't uh, change the environment minister when he did the cabinet shovel not really. I've, I've gotten, gotten the impression from their reaction to the Ford win since, uh, you know, June 7, that, uh, that they were kind of caught flat-footed. They want to double down on this. They don't have a plan B when it comes to the carbon tax and, and a scenario where they've got a uprising among, among some big provinces in Canada against this idea. I think that they've been coasting for the past, you know, nearly three years on this idea that 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 whatever they say environmentally is going to be acceptable to the public, but now they don't uh, they don't seem to know what to do with the with the what looks to be the dawning reality that uh, the the electorate doesn't like it. I'm not sure this was on the agenda of the premier's meeting. It certainly appears like it is now. What can the provinces do? Well, I mean, Ontario and Saskatchewan are going to lead the charge against this. Let's let's for, just for the moment, let's leave aside what could happen in 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 another province, Alberta, which is going to have an election uh, uh, in less than a year. Uh, leaving aside only that, the they've got a very strong case, or they've uh, it's they've got the prospect. You know, clever lawyers working for Saskatchewan and Ontario will have a field day, uh, and they'll and they'll be able to drive big diesel-powered trucks through all the inconsistencies in the federal fixation on a carbon tax. You're going you to be talking about the pipeline uh, in a moment. Every, you know, this pipeline that the federal government just bought, uh, purchased on our behalf, uh, every drop of that liquid is going to wind up either in the atmosphere or in the oceans as CO2 or as, as plastic in, in either landfills or the oceans, and it's not going to be taxed. What jurisprudence implications does that have? I mean, we're in a very, very unprecedented uh, moment in, in the history of jurisprudence. Like, there hasn't been a situation where there's been a global pollutant that is being taxed. It's going to be a very, very interesting fight. It's not, it's not at all certain that the federal government can win. I know that Manitoba has an has a, has a opinion saying that the federal government would, but if you fight it hard enough, if your lawyers are good enough, and I think that I can't see why that uh, Ontario and, and Saskatchewan can't muster good lawyers to fight this, um, even if you lose, you still come out. To, it's still a political decision on the federal government's part to to impose it because if if they've got an uprising among the provinces and those provinces have recently elected governments, you know, majority governments, how wise is it for the federal government to declare war like this? 
Uh, could this come back to bite Doug Ford? Uh, could it be that although Ontarians may not want to uh, 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 certainly be consumed with what Kathleen Wynne was doing and, and how much that cost them, uh, but do they do? Do they want to do something? I mean, it seems like we're still in a land of extremes. Yes, there, there's the uh, opposition in Ontario, and the federal government are going out of their way to brand the Ontario government as a bunch of climate retrogrades, and do the same thing with, yeah. with Saskatchewan. There is a risk that the uh, that both those governments could uh, uh, fall victim to that kind of meme, unless they fight back intelligently, which they certainly could. Ontario has, unlike every other jurisdiction across the country has a record of actually reducing carbon. We did it without a carbon tax. That approach that Ontario took, which is basically replacing coal with nuclear, is not on anybody's radar. This is, and, and that is because, you know, it's certainly not on the federal government's radar because the federal government appears to be running from a certain ideological standpoint, let's put it that way, that doesn't favor this. They've struck a task force to go into the fossil provinces, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, to see how they can phase out coal. There's nobody on that task force that had anything to do with the Ontario phase-out. Why is that? That's because of an ideological. There's some big limitations to the ideology that the feds are going from. If the provinces, if the two provinces that are opposing the carbon tax on Ontario and Saskatchewan can successfully uh, um, um, point that up, I think that they would have a better than fighting chance of surviving a move like this. Do you think uh, the Prime Minister's office learned anything from the defeat of Kathleen Wynne? Well, it's. I think that they're in wound-licking mode, and like I said, I, it looks like that they were caught flat-footed, and I don't know whether the, the uh, cabinet shuffle yesterday and, and uh, Catherine McKenna staying where she were, what that says, you know, it's, it says that she's going to remain the point person on, on climate change, and the carbon tax, but I don't, I don't think that that rules out the possibility that they look in the mirror and say, listen, we need to change our game because uh, we've reached the limits of this ideology that we've, that we've uh, this ideology that we, that we have adopted, lock, stock and barrel, was just repudiated pretty soundly in, in Ontario. It stands a chance of getting repudiated in Alberta. We don't know what's going to happen in Alberta. But I think that there's, uh, there's a chance that a federal government has got the flexibility to uh, rethink its approach on this. Steve Applin has been with us, publisher of Emission Track, which monitors CO2 carbon dioxide emissions from energy use. Steve, thanks for the input. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman. Oh, we there? Uh, let's bring in... My headphones just cut out. Sorry. Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant, uh, Huffington Post, Canada.com, PR Daily. You can read her stuff there as well. And, of course, the principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. She is with us now. Hello, Alyssa. Thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Did you realize there was a shot that, that, that you remember the shot of the outside I'm, of the I'm house? Devastated. It's I'm a ra- devastated, Scott. I know. It's all a fraud. What are I they going to tell? All, all those publicity shots of them on the stairs. Yeah. The staircase oh to nowhere. Goodness. It's oh. a staircase to nowhere. Oh. I don't even think I... Alice was real at this point. Oh, my goodness. I like Alice. All right. Have you seen, uh, uh, well, let me, before we get to the photo mm-hmm. and the picture of uh, uh, Tom, uh, Time Magazine and Trump and, and such on the cover, Trump and Putin, I guess, sort of the same. It's the day after the day after uh, the explanation 
of uh, Trump's meeting with Putin. Is this is his uh, analogy playing any any further? Is it is it going in the in the drain? Is it gaining legs? Is this is this explanation going anywhere? The would the wouldn't the wouldn't the would. Well, it depends who you talk to. I would have to say that it's not. You know, this is the news cycle that will not stop, okay? I've been listening to all the channels. You know, I've got satellite radio here, and I've been flipping through all the channels. And those that are, you know, MSNBC, CNN, HLN, even Fox, it is still on the news wheel. And, you know, the fact that people are still discrediting it The fact that the explanation was particularly lame, oh, well, I said would and I meant wouldn't, you know, there's a couple of things at play uh, here, Scott. You know, number one, I I don't believe that his team has all the facts in order to even counteract or properly mount a proper defense, uh, so to speak, of what happened in Helsinki. I think they know what they know. All they had to do was, all they had at their disposal was basically his remarks and try to make something of that. What went on in that two-hour meeting is still up for grabs. Secondly, uh, Russia is now saying, well, maybe we should do a joint investigation. Yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> the State Department must be just sitting there, jaw slack, banging their heads, as if, as if we would open up our intelligence that freely. I mean, I can only imagine what Trump said to Putin in those two hours, that the that you know Russia feels that they can actually engage in a joint investigation with us. They must think that their path is now paved with gold, and that even as head of the KGB, Putin has never had so much access to U.S. intelligence. You know that's the first thing. You know the second thing is I think this is all just lip service. Even Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I mean this is you know you think about everything that she has corroborated so far. This is the ultimate. This has to take the cake. And even she, you can see the pain in her face trying to uh, absorb all of this and actually come back with a decent response. It's just not working. And everybody wants to know what happened in the two-hour meeting. So I don't care what Trump and his people say right now, because all of this is just probably one phone call to Russia saying, listen, I've got to do this. I've got to agree with my people at home. I've yeah. encountered a huge you know, firestorm of criticism. And, you know, Trump has a notoriously thin skin. And when he saw his home state TV, a.k.a. Fox, actually uh, come up against him in the health-seeking meetings, he probably acquiesced to do something. But honestly, this is just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. How long? They're talking about another another meeting. They're already talking about having another meeting, which I said yesterday Yesterday they should have another meeting just simply to clarify the would, the wouldn'ts, and, and what was going on. If he's misspeaking, if he misspoke during uh, his press conference, Lord knows how he may have misspoke during this secret meeting with Putin. If he has another meeting with Putin, is America going to stand by and let him have it in secret again and then learn from the outcome from Russia as opposed to him? He was complaining the other day that nobody talked about the meeting. Well, nobody knows what the hell went on. They weren't there. So will America stand by and let him have another secret meeting with him? No way. And they should not. I mean, people need to rise up. I mean, if this is the resistance, the resistance is now in big play, right? You know, you see what's going on. I saw some uh, air balloon, you know, that was being blown up to fly over New York. Um, 
you know, this cannot happen again. This is just a joke to have yet another meeting and to double down on whatever's going on because the rhetoric that's coming out now, as far as I'm concerned, is not truthful. It is 110% not truthful. And to what? Have another meeting? And this time, I guarantee you, Scott, if they had another meeting, there'd be no closed doors. It would look, uh, you know, as transparent and uh, so that everybody knows what's going on. No, there would be no closed doors, absolutely not, in this meeting. But it would just be a sham. That's all it would be. It would just be for show. It would just be a sham. You know, That's what everybody thought this one was going to be about. Well, then it's a double sham. It's a double shame if, if, you know, uh, they let this happen again. Honestly, I cannot see the State Department. I cannot see the Pentagon. I cannot see anybody allowing letting this to happen. Do political cartoons still have the weight that they did in the old days? And we remember, you know, any newspaper had a good political cartoonist that uh, would uh, take the news of the day and put it into into one image. Uh, some incredible political cartoons coming out now. We were talking about the one the other day in the Daily News where they've got a, a caricature of, of Donald Trump walking hand in hand with a shirtless Putin while holding a gun. Uh, up to Uncle Sam's head and, and literally shooting him. What an incredible, powerful picture that was, or image uh, that was. Uh, now Time Magazine has done a face which transforms from Putin uh, to Trump and, and, and back and forth, both still and, and a moving in image. Your thought on these cartoons? I think they're very powerful. I think that if you're not going to read beyond the headlines, the one thing you can get is by looking at a picture. And I think that the the old adage still holds true. Uh, a, a picture tells a thousand words. So I think these cartoons are extremely powerful. I think there's absolutely still a place for them in society and to provide commentary in a way where it's more illustrative as much as it is um, getting across a message. With respect to time, I wrote about this, I mentioned this on my Twitter account and, and LinkedIn, that time is having a moment right now. They, see how, they seem to have found a niche in coming, coming up with the clever cover creative. You know, we had the one before with um, Donald Trump looming over a, a small child, yeah. ostensibly one that was separated from his parents. And now we have this morphing. And, you know, you know, number one, in a, in a day and age when magazines rarely have the same impact that they once did, yeah. Time is trying to carve out a niche. I don't know whether it's actually driving readership, Scott. Um, however, they're definitely carving out a niche where all eyeballs are now looking at what they are doing. Hopefully it's driving traffic. And hopefully it's creating more relevancy for a medium that has certainly has lost it in the past, you know, two, three, five years. You know, the only problem with doing things like that is that you are now under the gun to, well, what's time going to do now? What's yeah. time going to do now? So you certainly have to dedicate a lot of resources to that. But, you know, if that's the problem, it's certainly a small price to pay. Uh, Trump, obviously very proud when he was person of the year. How do you think he feels now? You know, I, I, I'm sort of in the middle of reading The Fire and Fury by Michael Wolff, and I ordered it a long time ago, and I couldn't even bring myself to read it after I ordered it. But I, I started reading it now, and, you know, some of the things they say, I realize, you know, you have to take with a grain of salt, but I truly believe he believes the last thing he heard. And I also believe that his staff tries to insulate him from any bad news. He doesn't want to hear bad news. I, you know, I think that he's bruised. I think that he is feeling some heat. And I think that the biggest issue that he's feeling is that he's not liked. 
and that when his own That's what I think the difference is here now because he was always yeah. gauged as the bully and the mean guy and strong and now people are painting him as a weak individual. And I think that his base is actually starting to fracture. You know, when I'm reading the comments on what happened on let's say there was a uh, Fox commentator named Trish Regan and she came openly out and said, "Listen, you know, that was not President Trump's finest hour. And then I started reading the comments. And now I'm so jaded, Scott, I think that maybe these comments are pro-comments are actually bought. But people are going, he's our president, leave him alone. I don't see what the big deal about Russia is. So, you know, either you don't get it or you don't care. But the one part of his base that is chipping away are those who are veterans. Those who yeah, the military, in sure. In, in, yes, in Korea, in Desert Storm, in Iraq. They're like, I fought for my country. We are fighting against an enemy. This is not my president. And the worst part of it all, of it all, Scott, is that Republicans, establishment Republicans, are expressing their dismay and offering up a rebuke, but only to a point, because many of them have been elected in states that are part of his base. And that I find 110% reprehensible. You heard Lindsey Graham say, Senator Lindsey Graham say, don't let that soccer ball that Putin tossed yeah. to Trump the other day anywhere near the White House. Hmm. And then he's saying, well, you know, we hope that this can be fixed, and it seems that it is. Come on, Lindsey Graham, you know exactly what's going on, and you're worried about getting voted in again. So, you know, there's a lot of things at play here, and above all, it's will the base continue to support him? Can they continue to play that electoral college, you know, game? Uh, and what will really happen in the midterms? And you know, while I don't expect this story to last until November, what I've seen the Democrats doing, and this is the first time I've actually seen a commercial like this on CNN, there was an out-and-out commercial with hashtag impeach. Mm. You know, really put, that was put together, obviously um, quickly, but also cleverly, that says. You know, this is someone you can't trust. He aligns with the Russians. Now is the time. So the Democrats are coming up with some more very aggressive narratives. And what they need to do now is now provide the candidates that are worth voting for Bingo. that can start, um, you know, tipping the balance in the other direction. Uh, I think this story will stay alive because Donald Trump will keep it alive by continually shooting himself in the foot and not let it go. I mean, uh, anybody who ever thought there was no collusion must now at least suspect there was simply because he keeps repeating the line over and over and over again, no collusion. I mean, come on. It's like it's like watching a, a child. You know, we always say in crisis communication, Scott, never repeat the charge. So while we know the collusion is the hot-button word, he keeps repeating it. Yeah. And the other thing, too, was somebody did get a hold of his notes, or they got a shot of his notes, and it did show yeah. you know, him you know, writing in the margins and marker you know, to emphasize certain points. So, you know, again, the news cycle tends to create itself week after week. And just when you think it can't get any worse, obviously it's getting worse. So if there's a pattern here, which we're obviously seeing, of things that keep happening in very dangerous and untoward ways, you know, it gives me great pause and causes me a lot of worry on how much farther it could go. So this cozying up of potential alliances of joint investigations, you've got to be kidding. Hmm. I, honestly, you and I sit here and think this is not going to happen. Oh, my goodness. You know, Scott, it 
could happen. Yep. No, very true. Alyssa Freeman is with us. Alyssa Freeman PR. Alyssa, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.